Oh, this is scary. Um, that was a lot to respond to. I kind of all over the place. Um, maybe I'll do it backwards. Um, I was thinking about, you know, there's so many different threads running through that last presentation. On the one hand, talking about, you know, sort of Keynesian economics and um, is it possible to go back to it, talking about the current stage of neoliberal capitalism in certain ways and trying to look beyond all at the same time. Uh, maybe, I mean, when I try to look at all these things in re historical retrospective, I, I found the most useful single account was that of uh, put together by the Midnight Notes Collective. I don't know if people are familiar with them. Um, which, I mean, this is my own sort of um, caricature version of the argument, but I like it. Um, basically, it goes like this. There's really two, there have been two phases of, of post-war capitalism, which went through a, a remarkably similar cycle. The first was the Keynesian moment. Um, you could say that after World War II, um, from, it lasted from about, say, 1945 to roughly 75, say, sometime in the 70s. When, Essentially, there's like, there was a kind of a deal made between the ruling classes and certain elements of the working class, specifically the sort of the white male working class of North Atlantic countries, which basically went like this. Um, if you guys agree not to become communists, or, um, and we will take care of you and give you a certain share of your own productivity. So essentially the way the Keynesian deal worked was that, that um, increases of productivity would be matched by increases of wages. Um, you would have, having full political rights would also give you a certain level of uh, economic security. Um, education, welfare state, you know, so forth and so on. Um, you know, and, and you could see the social struggles of the next 30 years or so, as more and more people are demanding in on the deal. You know, if, if political rights means certain level of economic security, what about me? Um, so, so, you know, it start, it, this included everybody from minority groups that had been excluded from the original deal, African Americans, um, the civil rights movement, various people in the global south, um, eventually women, most notably. Um, all the people had been sort of left out. And the argument is that, well, you know, Capitalism doesn't work that way. You can't actually get to a point where all working class people actually get to have a reasonable life. Um, you know, for anybody with, with a car and insurance um, and, and kids in college and so forth and so on, there's two or three that have to be screwed over somewhere. And when they reached the point, you know, of, uh, there was a kind of crisis of inclusion. The crisis of inclusion tends to, look the same way when it happens. Um, you know, you get your oil shocked, you get your financial crisis, you get um, visions of ecological catastrophe. Um, and they essentially by 75 they'd gotten there, they hit the reset button and they said, all right, um, deal's off. Um, <laughs> political rights will no longer give you any economic guarantees of security. Um, instead, we'll go to credit. Um, so suddenly, every you know, you have this outpouring of mortgage idea that all oh, people should own their own houses and have mortgages, 401ks, um, you know, pension funds invested in the stock market. Everybody's uh, supposed to be capitalist. You know, microcredit's going to save the third world. Um, 
So essentially, it's debt. This is the solution to the problem. And thus, everybody can have political rights because, oh, you know, political rights mean nothing economically anymore. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's sort of telling that what happens is you get another, uh, the whole thing ends with another crisis of inclusion, essentially. Um, more and more people want in on that deal. Obviously, again, it's impossible. Um, you know, thus the subprime mortgage crisis in a way is, is a perfect example. We started extending the deal to people they had no intention of really extending the deal to. Um, in fact, they were completely ripping them off. And what do you get? You get oil shock, you get financial crisis, you have visions of ecological catastrophe. Oh, it's like the 70s crisis back again. And in a way, we've had nothing but a series of debt crises since then. I'm, you know, mostly confined to the global south until they effectively managed to kick the IMF out of much of the world, Latin America, East Asia, and it's kind of bounced back on us. Uh, but why I emphasize that is, is, is that, you know, both the idea of like, can we go back to Keynesian policies, or the idea that somehow everybody owns a piece of capital, I think are, are, are equally illusory, I, I think. Um, you know, the Keynesian deal was never offered to everyone. It broke in half as soon as it reached the point where even a fair proportion of the world's working classes managed to win access to it. And it was also based on growth rates, which are just ecologically unsustainable. I mean, one thing interesting about neoliberalism is that even though it's, it's all about subordinating everything to economic growth, the rates of economic growth you know, sit 70, between 75 and now have been way lower worldwide than they have during that period of supposedly, you know, state-directed and efficient capitalism from 45 to 75. Um, and you, it's clearly, we just can't go back there. Um, similarly, the idea that we're all owning a piece of capitalism, I mean, to me this is like saying that freedom means that we own, we all own a piece of our own future exploitation. <laughs> that's what it really comes down to, right? Because that's what debt is. It's speculation on, you know, what we're going to extract from people later. So we all get to, like, speculate on stock about how much they can, like, squeeze out of us at some point in the future. Uh, I don't really think that's a sustainable model. So the question, what is? Um, I mean, one of the things that's always surprised me is, is, is that they, have, they haven't come up with a plausible new model. I guess it's true. It took a while after the 70s before we figured out what we were now in. Um, but I must say that speaking as someone who's involved in sort of thing, the global justice movement, we were um, we were kind of shocked that they didn't get their act together. I mean, you know, we were constantly in the situation where we were waiting for them to come up with their evil plans so we could fight it, and they couldn't. They would just argue with each other. You know, we would come up with evil plans for them. It's going to be green capitalism. You can see it now. They're going to co-opt certain things, and they put together these like programmatic statements of like what we think the capitalists are up to. And it was we always came up with a better plan than they actually came up with it themselves. Um, at some point, we're thinking, well, maybe we just like convince them to do this, and then we can have something to oppose anyway. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, we are in this period where, where I mean, my, my personal opinion is, is it's because they put all of their emphasis on the in the political sphere rather than the economic one. I mean, if neoliberalism means anything, it's just constantly pounding away at like anything that looks like an alternative and trying and constantly prioritizing making capitalism seem like the only plausible system over creating a system of capitalism that actually would be viable over the long term. But the results of the thing is falling apart and none of us, you know, and just at the point where the thing is falling apart is just the point where none of us can imagine anything else. Um, 
So, so this is my reaction to those various um, approaches. I, I think we do need to think of something new. I, I do, however, like the idea that um, you know we're already in an alternative system to some degree. This is one of the things I was getting at when I talked about baseline communism and all those other things. And, you know, we're all actually anarchists 20 to 30 percent of the time. And I mean, anytime we make an arrangement that wouldn't have to be enforced by police, you know, we're being anarchists. Anytime we, we behave according to principle from each according to their abilities to each according to their, their needs, we're already being communists, so forth and so on. So to some degree, all of this is already here. We just can't, we've just been trained not to see it. So it might be an interesting way to think about it, is like how much of it are we already doing? I have a friend, actually, David Harvey, not the famous David Harvey, but the other David Harvey, i.e. Um, <laughs> the obscure David Harvey. He's also a Marxist economist. Um, <laughs> he's actually went out and, um, act, and, and measured, in, and this is in the UK, which is one of the most commoditized societies ever, um, and he determined that 49% of all labor is not aimed at getting money. Um, you know, either it's domestic or it's something you do volunteer work or it's, I mean, you're gardening, um, you're doing it for yourself, you're doing it for your friends. Uh, and that's like in the most commoditized society ever, like only half of what we do is actually market oriented at all. So it's in, really interesting to think about that. Um, I mean, we might have less far to go than we think. In terms of universities, well, money, I mean, money, I was in that uh, working group or breakout group, so it seems silly for me to talk about it again. But um, I did find that, that the problem with money is, is the habits we form around it. And not even exchange, this is what was really interesting, is that money introduces bureaucratic impulses. Um, and we found this to be the case in Occupy Wall Street, that like, when we started getting all this money, well, suddenly the, the whole nature of the process changed. So almost all of the proposals were about requesting money and people started becoming suspicious and jealous of each other. And, um, and, 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 but most of all it became this allocation system where it was deeply bureaucratized. Um, People started becoming very legalistic about the language of proposals. It brought these whole series of habits. So it makes one think that money is, well, problem with money isn't so much that it brings out greed and exchange. It's because we were, nobody was exchanging anything. Um, it's, it's that it's embedded in these impersonal bureaucratic relationships. So we just don't know how to do those sort of allocate resources in a different way. So that seems to be the great challenge of actually, you know, managing a commons in a way where things are dis re distributed between radically different projects in a way that everybody feels is fair. Um, in terms of universities, um, universities provide an interesting space for that. And I, 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 an interdisciplinarity. Um, okay. Um, it strikes me that the real function of universities in the cash economy Someone pointed this out, is, is, is providing certificates. Um, and one of the really insidious aspects of, of the, the sort of economic disasters that led to the emergence of things like Occupy Wall Street is this terrible debt crisis that we have um, that in order to move into the liberal professions, as I used to call them, you need more and more accreditation that you didn't need before. And you're paying, and that's basically what you're paying for. I mean, I used to think that teaching is like at least 
one of the more innocuous um, professions, and you know, it's less true, less and less true. I mean, because if you're a university professor, in a way, I mean, I, someone wrote an essay recently saying we're basically all just debt pimps. You know, we're, we're drawing people into lives of indebtedness that they don't anticipate. Um, and but in a way, it's not the it's it's the certificates which they need, uh, and what you're teaching is almost un irrelevant. And I, in a way, I take a certain comfort in that. Um, I was I was thinking of the so what you really take take selling is both the certificate and access to the space that you have, where for a few years you are free of those immediate um, need to do all those things that you're going to have to do to pay the debt back. Um, and in that space, you know, you have to improvise on a certain level. And, but, but one of the saving graces is it doesn't really matter for the system what you do in that space. I was thinking of this when I was thinking of, um, actually, this fellow, David Harvey, um, is, is, it works in a business school. And there's a strange phenomenon. We don't really have it here yet in America, but there's a lot of it in Europe of Marxist business schools. And, and, yeah, I know. This one's first reaction is to say that's that's completely ridiculous. Um, but it tells you something really profound, I think, about the nature of, of what education has become. Um, the reason why you have Marxist business schools is because um, where Marxists going to go? All the money's in the business schools. There is moving away from economics departments or any other thing that they could have done. On the other hand, these business school guys, they have nothing but money. They, uh, it's just poured on them, and they're bored as hell because you know what business school texts are, are terribly boring. Um, they really like so you just show up and start talking about declining rates of profit, or even especially you talk about Deleuze and Guattari and Guy Debord, and they're like, well, at least it's not putting me to sleep. That's it's interesting. Tell me more about this. Here, yeah, I have another million dollars because they're swimming in cash, and um, and and so as long as you don't challenge certain very practical things going on, they're happy with you. Um, but and when I first heard about this, um, I have all these friends like teaching, you know, Guy Debord's game of strategy as a way of thinking about administration. You know, to, to these business school um, students. I mean, I thought. Okay, that sounds cool, but then I heard that most of them are from overseas. This is in London, uh, Queen Mary and places like that. And I thought, now wait a minute. I'm not sure how I feel about this, because here we have all these people from China, for example. Um, you know, presumably their family has been saving for ages to be able to send their kid to a business school in London. Um, is it really fair to take this kid and then, like, you know, teach them about Guy Debord and Andalusian, you know, <laughs> rhizomatic theory or something like that? Um, you know, is, are you really ripping this guy, these people off? And, and, and they said to me, well, no, actually, because you don't learn anything in business school anyway. You're just paying for the certificate. I mean, there's two courses maybe where you learn something. There's like you know a statistics course and there's a law course, and we give them that. We give them that straight, and the rest is just we substitute our bullshit for their bullshit. So why not? Um, so the very fact that you're basically doing, you know, you're basically selling certificates means that the content is 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 kind of up for grabs. It doesn't really matter all that much what you put in it. So it might be like uh, provide a space for experiment in ways that that uh, we we haven't fully realized. I will end with that.